This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. Mm -hmm. I raised the price by $15,000 and said, is this something you want to you do? And he's like, give me 10 minutes and I'll let you know. Call me back in 10 minutes. He goes, I'll take it. I was like, whoa. I just made $15,000 in like 10 minutes. Like, this is awesome. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's going on, everyone? This is Jonathan Farber, your host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I hope you're all well and healthy. For any first-time listeners, thanks for being here. The goal of this show is to explore ways to become financially free through real estate or to increase passive cash flow through real estate. A little background on myself. I work in corporate America at a software company. My side hustle is real estate. I currently own eight rental units and looking to add more this spring. I have house hacked, bird, flipped, and done short-term rentals to name a few strategies. My current focus is 20 to 30 unit apartment buildings in Ohio and Kentucky. I love to network and learn. So if you'd like to connect further, feel free to find me on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Bigger Pockets. We have an awesome, awesome guest today. Like this, well, I'll just, I'll just say it. This is probably one of my favorite episodes done so far in, well, 40 or 50 recorded episodes. I don't know what number this will be, but um, the reason is Mike just delivers so much tangible, actionable strategy. Like there is zero fluff. There's zero macro. There's zero pie in the sky. Like everything this guy says you can put into place, put into action today. Like you can, you can go out and start calling people. He tells you what to say. You can go think about a strategy because he tells you how to think like everything he says makes sense and anyone can do. And he also, what I love, breaks down the, ex the excuses the lot, that a lot of people say and talks about how there are real excuses and there are fake excuses and there's actual strategy and then there's people that are missing strategy. So he talks about both, but just for anyone listening, if you're trying to find more deals or add systems to your business or grow business, there's, there's something to be gained from this episode. So I'm, I'm just really hyped up about it. Uh, I, I hope to connect with Mike further and check out more of his stuff. He's got a book coming out. Um, he has a podcast of his own. He's been on Baker Pockets. He's been on uh, Best Ever, Joe Fairless. So he's he's known in the industry. Like like he's out there and producing content. Um, but just still, like even with that said, I think he's his content is underrated and just tons of value to be had there. So really excited about today's episode. Um, a little uh, background. He is based in Michigan. He focuses on wholesales and flips. The two things that stood out to me from this episode, there were so many, but just to dig into two that, that really stood out um, were how he finds deals. He goes through his whole process, his marketing strategy, how much money that costs, uh, why he changes his strategy a little bit for flipping or for wholesaling and why he changed from wholesaling to flipping and, or vice versa from flipping to wholesaling. So he walks through the marketing and lead gen for both. Very interesting stuff there. Uh, the second thing, this was awesome. He talks about how he actually works with brokers and contractors to not get burned. Um, this is one that I hear time and time again, problems with contractors, not getting good bids, not getting good pricing. Um, he walks through his exact process for doing that. And there's a lot of bumps and bruises he's taken along the way to come up with the strategy. So you can probably learn a lot and prevent a lot of pain or just extra expenses by following it. So really, really enjoyed that part. 
Um, hope you uh, get some value from it. Today's quick tip, tangible tip, is on anything that I am not sure, like 50% not sure or sure that I, that I will get a response on, I CC myself. So it comes back to my inbox because for a while, I realized I was sending a lot of outbound email. Um, could have been for anything, sales, uh, internal stuff, operational stuff, and it would go out. And then if I didn't have it on a to-do list to check back, I would never know that it was out there or I'd forget. I mean, I have pretty bad memory. So by doing it this way, um, it comes back to my box and we could go through email strategy another time, but just on the labels that I have set up, I then just tag that as pending. So it goes into a different folder. It's pending at the end of every week. I check that pending folder. If there's stuff that hasn't been responded to, I can just see it right there. And it's an easy way to know what's still pending out there versus what's already been responded to or moved down or out of your box. So that's just a quick thing that I've been using. Um, there's a lot of softwares out there, but that's just one that I like. It's just a little thing, CCing myself on anything. I don't think there's a 50, or CCing myself on anything, there's about a 50% chance I'll get a response on, um, which is a lot of stuff these days. So um, without any further ado, awesome episode today, guys. I really, like, I want as many people to feel this is what I'm saying. Like, this is tangible, awesome content that anyone can put into practice. So without any further ado, here's Mike Simmons. All right, Mike, welcome to the podcast. All right, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, of course. I was excited uh, to get this kicked off. And then even just some of the stuff we were talking about before hitting record here. Um, I think it's really uh, uh, relevant what you've done and what you're doing on a day-to-day basis um, in business in general, real estate in general, especially with COVID-19, of how you're creating content, continuing your business strategy, primarily a wholesaler and flipper, but also creating a lot of content and educating a lot of people. So um, excited for today's show. You've been on other podcasts. You do a lot of content creation yourself. You're out there. So um, it should be fun. Uh, for those that haven't had a chance to check you out on any of the other podcasts or your own, which I'd love to talk about, um, you mind just giving a quick background on how this all kind of started for you, how you got involved in real estate, and maybe your first deal or two, and then we can, we can dig in. Yeah, definitely. So I started off, so I, I'm in Michigan, so Midwest guy. Uh, my parents uh, were involved in automotive, you know, kind of a union blue collar uh, mentality. So that's, that's where I come from, right? For me and my family and my parents, what success was to them or what they wanted for their kids, including me, was get into a stable job, get into a union, like work 30 years, work all the overtime you can and all that. And that's, that, that was the menu that was presented to me of this is what you're, what you should be striving for. Right? So when you're a kid and you're listening to this, it's like, well, your parents know everything, right? So let's, I guess that's what you do. And, and so once I started going down that path, I realized, man, this isn't for me. Like I can't, I can't sit in this cubicle. So I was lucky enough, or I should say lucky. I don't like when people say that. I worked hard. I went to college, uh, didn't go directly to high school, but I got like a, a blue collar uh, factory job basically, which is what my parents want. They were ecstatic. I hated it. I, I knew I wasn't built for that. So I went back to school at one point as, a, as an adult, got my degree, got into more of like a white collar um, business management kind of a role, sort of a corporate thing. And I did that. And my goal was to work my way up the ladder and, and, and kind of go that route. And, but once I was there, I realized like, gosh, this, this still doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like the skin that I'm supposed to be wearing. And, hmm. and, and I also realized at some point, like I, I had kids and I, you know, I was getting a little older. So I was like, well, 
what does retirement look like for me, right? Like at this point I was in my early thirties and I'm like, I'm already thinking about retirement cause I'm miserable. So I'm like, what does it take for me to retire? How am I going to do this? And I started doing the math, like, okay, at, at a certain kind of a, a price of living, cost of living and my raise schedule that I'm on and what my trajectory, like I was never going to be able to retire. Like it was never going to happen. So the next logical thing is, okay, I should be investing money. Like I should start investing. Right. And so back then day trading was, po was popular. And, and I started kind of thinking about investing vehicles. And so the stock market, right. I'm going to learn how to invest in the stock market. And I started looking into that and Googling, you know, stuff about stocks and, and bonds. And I, I hated it, man. I just hated it. I hated reading about it. So I would start reading about stocks and the stock market and how to invest. And before I know it, I'm on like ESPN.com and NFL.com and I'm just reading about sports and I'm just going down these other venues. But when you, when you look up investing on the internet and you just kind of open and search, you'll eventually stumble upon real estate investing. If you scroll far enough, you'll, you'll, you'll stumble on it, whether you mean to or not. So when I found that I started reading about these different real estate investors and how they were making money and what they were doing. And I was like, I realized after being on these for like hours, just, just, absorbing this material. I loved it. Like I loved it. I, it, I wasn't going to ESPN.com. I wasn't going all these other places that can distract you. I was staying on these sites cause I just couldn't get enough. So that was back in well, like 2004 or five or something like that. And I started going down that path, um, had some stuff happen in my life, some personal stuff that derailed me a little bit, got back on track around 2008. And that's when I bought my first house, 2008. Um, it was right at the beginning of the, the real estate crash back then, if, for those of you who, who uh, remember that. Um, and so I, what happened to my first house, I got under contract. Uh, I put down my EMD. I had a, a loan set up with a traditional bank. It was a small, very, very small local bank and was ready to close. And I got a call from the bank saying, hey, we're, we're closing shop. Like we're not funding anything anymore. And I'm like, well, what happens with my EMD? Like I was brand new. I'm like, I just gave you a thousand dollars. Like that was all the money I had, you know? And I ended up losing it because I couldn't get funding again. So it was like, whoa, that was hardcore, right? So I waited about six months, tried to, you know, looking for deals still, but the price now is, the prices are, are plummeting at this point, right? So mm -hmm. six months later, I bought a house like three doors down from that original house for half the price that I paid for it. I was going to pay for the other one six months ago, meaning had I bought that house, I would have been buried. I, I would have gotten screwed big time because I would have put money into it and, and the value would have been less than what I paid for. So I would have gotten absolutely financially crushed if I had gone through with that deal. So it was a good thing in retrospect. Uh, it felt bad at the time, but I ended up buying the house like three, wow. do three doors down. Um, and so this is Michigan prices, right? So if you're listening in California or someplace, New York, like don't freak out. I'm, I'm <laughs> telling you the honest numbers. This is 2008 numbers now, right? I bought the house for $40,000. Now this was a three bedroom brick ranch in a blue collar neighborhood. Like not, not bad area, not a war zone. It was a nice little, little area. Mm -hmm. Uh, bought it for 40, put 15 into it, sold it for like 75. And after all was said and done, made like $15,000. And I was on like cloud nine. I couldn't believe it. Now to do that, we, we bought it with a traditional mortgage. We found a, a bigger mortgage company that was not going to go out of business. We financed it with a traditional mortgage. And then we used credit cards, savings, just like kind of went all our chips in the, on the table to try to get this thing done. And we ended up making 15 grand and it was awesome. I, and I was hooked. More importantly, my wife was hooked because she's a lot more conservative than I am. And she was like, 
let's do this again. Like, let's keep going. Right. So we, that's, that's kind of how it started for us. Now, lessons learned. I, I hired a contractor that I liked personally. Like I interviewed a bunch. I did that right. And I hired one that I sort of like thought I would, could like hang with, you know, like he seemed like a nice guy, mm-hmm. uh, got burned that he disappeared at the end of the job. He didn't pay the subs. I didn't have release of liens, like all these things that you learn when you get going. And for those of you who don't know what a le- release of lien is, it basically is something that, uh, the contractor sign off saying they were paid for the work that they did. Right. So I didn't get that from anybody. So I had electricians calling me after the job saying I never got paid. And I'm like, I paid the general contractor and, they're like, well, I believe that you paid him, but we didn't get paid. So we're putting a lien on the house. So now I've got a lien on the house. So I had to negotiate with electricians uh, and I ended up negotiating the price down a little bit. They were cool. They worked with me. They knew I was not lying to them and I kind of got screwed. But those are the things you learn on the first one. Don't hire contractors because you like them. Hire them because they have good references, because they're professional, because they show up when they say they're going to show up, all these things. Um, release of liens are huge too, and you're doing close, but these are the lessons I learned on the first one, but I got lucky. I did it. It went well, other than the, the, the little hiccups at the end, but I still made money. And what I really did well, and this is, this was a huge lesson for me because it, it basically that one deal before it was finished, while we were doing it, my wife and I, we were flipping it. I started getting on Facebook and talking to people I knew. And like, I started talking about what we were doing to everyone who would listen, including on Facebook every, and this was back in like 2008. So like Instagram and stuff wasn't a thing. It was Facebook was pretty much it. So we were on there just documenting what we were doing, taking video, talking about our plans. And before that deal closed, we had two private investors, two people with money that came to us and said, we want to fund your next deal. We want to be in business with you. So from that point forward, I've never had to use any kind of hard money, institutional lending. It's all been private money fueled just because I talked about it. I was just, you know, upfront about what I was doing. All right. Wow. Um, Really, really interesting story. Very unique story, especially with the way that you got in right at the beginning of 2008 when things were right on the edge of crumbling and there's some luck, but there's also, I mean, you probably would have figured something out in that first scenario. You know, you, you can course correct, but it is interesting that not too long after you buy something and now you're deep in the 2008 recession and you're seeing what can happen. You still found a way to make money in that deal. Um, a couple of questions just came to mind hearing you talk about that first deal. So it seems like your main why, your main motivation for jumping into that was having this reflective moment that you realize one, you don't really like what you're doing and you need to find a way to invest and think about your future, your retirement, kind of, kind of replan and, and create uh, a new life trajectory. But I think a lot of people do have that. They're in a, in a job where they might not like it. It's a W2 job. They're not sure where to go or how to maybe start investing and get financially free. Usually I ask this question a little bit later in the show. It's, it's about taking action, but you felt compelled enough to take action and massive action, especially a flip project or a construction project where you're using your own money and credit cards there. So after that first deal, can you just talk us through and then maybe give some tangible advice on how you felt comfortable enough still taking action and how you felt prepared enough to still take action and then go forward and do it and not have it be a disaster with all these, let's say, external things collapsing around you? Yeah, totally. So one thing, one thing that I do not suffer from is fear of, of taking risk. I don't, I have almost no risk uh, 
fear at all. My risk tolerance is through the roof. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she's very risk averse. <laughs> she does not like risk. She likes certainty, right? So the, the reality was, uh, to use a racing analogy, she was the governor on my, on my car, right? So I was pushing down on the gas hard, like slamming it down, and, and it wouldn't go any faster because she would say, listen, we just got this house under contract. We're starting the renovation. Let's get it going and have a sense that we're kind of, we're going to be okay before we get the next house. And I was like, I want to make a hundred offers. Right. <laughs> so it was this constant like battle. And I say battle, not argument, but it was just like me pushing and her pulling a little bit. Right. It kind of kept us conservative a little bit. Um, so I don't have any problem taking risk. I, I think in, in some ways that's, it's, it's, it's a component of success. I think if you overthink anything, you'll, you'll freeze. Right. Because I think over analysis, like they call it analysis paralysis, right? If you, if you analyze things too much, you can talk yourself out of anything. I mean, anything, right? Like nobody would get married if they really thought about <laughs> everything involved, like, right? So if you overthink anything, you're going to be in trouble. I don't overthink much. Now, that's why sometimes like in, in the years that I've been doing this and, and I've, I've mentored people and I've coached people, the people that are the hardest sometimes to get off the ground in this industry are like engineers, you know, specifically because their brain is hardwired to analyze risk reward, to understand where the dangers are, to try to mm -hmm. mitigate all that. And they, they think about things very, very deeply and they're very analytical. If you do that too long, it can be tough. So I've had engineers and believe me, engineers can be totally successful in real estate, but they have to know themselves well enough to know, there's going to be some calculated risks. There's, and by calculated, I don't mean totally figured out. You're going to have to take some leaps of faith, right? So I think for me, it was easy to keep going. It, what was hard for me was to not go faster. But that's not everybody, right? You, with real estate, I always tell people like, you know, the stock market's risky. You know, you, you buy stocks in some company, you don't have any control over what they do. But when you buy property, you're, you're buying it hopefully at less than it's worth at that moment, right? You're buying it undervalued. And every dollar you put into it is raising the value of it by a dollar plus some variable. So at any given time, if you do your upfront work calculations um, effectively, then at no point is your money at significant risk because you're always buying it undervalued and then you're adding value to it uh, at, a, at a multiple of what you're putting into it, okay? So you buy a house for, just to use numbers, you buy a house, I'm going to use numbers that are not Michigan numbers so other people can relate a little easier. You buy a house for 250000 right? You put 50000 into it. And when you're done, it's going to be worth 400000 okay, just to use numbers. So you bought it at 250. It was probably worth 275 or maybe 280 when you bought it, right? So you buy it a little bit conservative there. You put money into it, you're putting... 50,000 into it and you're raising the value of it by 150 by a multiple of three. So if you're careful up front, when you do what, where people get in trouble, this is probably the best advice I can give anybody, especially flippers. What flippers, especially new ones tend to do because they're so excited to get a deal and they really want to be an investor and they just want it to happen. So they do two things wrong. Normally they they lie to themselves about what the house will be worth at the end of the renovation, right? ARV, after repair value. They, they kid themselves or they talk themselves into an ARV that's a little unrealistic. And then when they're, when they're uh, trying to calculate or estimate the renovation budget, they underestimate, right? So they talk themselves into an artificially high ARV 
and an artificially low renovation budget. And then when they go to sell and they don't make money or they lose money, they're like, I don't get it, right? Because you, you were being optimistic with ARV and optimistic with your renovation budget and it just doesn't, it doesn't work out. So that ARV, right, the, the after repair value, that number is the starting point. If that number's off significantly, none of the calculations under it really matter because you're going to be wrong, right? If you think that house is gonna be worth 400,000, the one we talked about in the example, and mm -hmm. it's only gonna be worth 325,000 at the end of the day, and you bought it for 250 and put 50 into it, the numbers don't work, right? So, you know, a lot of people look at that and they go, well, yeah, there's a $25,000 profit there. No, there's not because there's holding costs, there's cost of money, like it, there's no money there, right? So you ha those, those calculations are critical up front and you have to be honest with yourself. 100%. So you touched on so many good points there. And, and that's actually on my first flip. Uh, I was, it was my, my one and only, I, I'm a buy and hold investor um, typically, but on my first flip, I made those exact two mistakes that you just talked about. One, I, I half lied, half hoped. Yeah. And for, for that reason, it just didn't turn out like I expected. Plus then you factor in whatever you want to call it, Murphy's law, whatever happens, yep. happens. And it sat longer and the price was lower and it just, it is what it is. And I think since then, and, and this is something um, I'm sure you would agree with, but curious to get your take on it as far as being very conservative with your numbers. And I, I feel like people say that and then they still just don't put it into effect or practice when they're analyzing deals or not. And can you just talk about, I guess, from a general standpoint, how you think about the numbers um, so that you know that there's there's enough meat on the bone, they're healthy enough for you to actually consider doing a flip or even a wholesale. But you know how how do you like to think about your numbers conservatively? Any benchmarks you think about? Yeah, there is, and I, and I will say this too for clarity, right? You can there when it comes to the your the purchase price, what you will pay for a property. There's a window. There's an upper and a lower window, right? So everyone thinks about the the when they're doing their numbers right you can be so conservative and so careful that you never buy a house you you can right you can just overestimate everything like you can wait see when people get like this is what engineers do they way underestimate the arv and they way overestimate the renovations and there's never going to be any meat on the bone because they're so conservative right that's, that's not normal, but that's like an engineer brain. That's how they operate. So they're like, I, I'm never getting deals. It's like, yeah, because you're, you're too conservative. Most people though, because they're excited, they're doing the opposite, which we just talked about. Right? So for me, I know, like, I'll tell you what I do as a wholesaler. Um, I don't know what everyone's criteria is. So what I do is I assume most flippers want to make approximately 20% on the first hundred thousand dollars worth of retail price. So in other words, if I'm selling them a house for 50,000 and the retail, the after repair value is a hundred thousand, I'm assuming they want to make 20,000. Like that's just the number I use, right? So 20% on the first 100,000 and then somewhere between 12 and 15% on every hundred thousand after that, right? So that's how I calculate it. I, I think what the mistake, and, and man, I tell you, this, I get this all the time, is I kind of alluded to it in the first scenario, is people will, will calculate all the numbers, right? ARV, the cal they'll calculate the renovation that they think it's going to be. And at the end of the thing, they go, I'm going to make $10,000 or I'm going to make $5,000. And for someone who works a nine to five and they have no money in the bank and, and they're just kind of struggling, 
I'll say 5,000 isn't enough. And they'll go, Oh, 5,000 is enough for me. I don't care. Like, that's great. That's $5,000 a ton of money. It's like, no, no, no. It's not that making 5,000 isn't necessarily enough, but only planning on making 5,000 is a huge mistake because $5,000 can be eaten up in like a nanosecond. Because if you calculate the ARV wrong a little bit, just a little bit, not grossly wrong, just a little bit, and you're off on your renovation a little bit, and then something shows up during the renovation, Murphy's Law that you alluded to, right? Somebody wired the, the you know, one of the, the walls of the house got wired, you know, by some ha handyman that had no business wiring anything. And you don't know that until you get into the project, right? So, the, the, the renovation's off a little bit, and then you find something going on in the renovation that you could never have known about, right? So that comes up. And then you hold the property for an extra couple of months, so you have holding costs. Like, that $5,000 is gone. You're in, you're in the red right mm. now. So people, and I did this too, like, I'd go, I don't need to make $20,000 on every, every renovation. And it's like, don't worry, you won't. But plan on making $20,000. And then when you make ten, because everything that you can think of went wrong, you're okay. You do. You still made ten. If you plan to make five, then you're probably end up losing money half the time. You know, you just you. It's not. It's too. It's too slim of margins to count on when there's variables outside of your control that can and will happen during a flip. You have to be careful. That makes so much sense because I think I have heard that same answer before from people that say five or ten thousand or X percent profit is still good enough. But it's not that it's not, to your point, it's exactly that. That can evaporate so quickly oh, on a yeah. misprojection that yep. I think that's where people may get burned or decide they don't want to do it anymore. They just think there's too much risk in it. So just digging into some of the parts that maybe to offset some people's fears, right? I think the two fears I, I completely agree with is being um, off on your expected ARV and then also being off on your expected, let's say holding costs or repairs. So for someone listening to this right now, that's maybe looking at COVID-19 as their opportunity to jump on some, maybe if it happens, lower price inventory. Yep. And finally, some things are going to loosen up and they can start the flipping business that they've been thinking about doing for the last 10 years. Okay. What advice do you have for someone that's trying to calculate ARVs specifically, I think we could talk about holding costs and construction costs as a second question, but for someone that's looking at this and trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I tangibly understand ARV versus value of it now? And then whole, I'm getting these deals sent to me, either I'm finding them or they're sent to me, but I'm having trouble understanding and calculating what they're going to be worth after the fact or what they should be worth right now. Yep. What, what actionable advice do you have for someone that's thinking about that? Good, that's a great question, actually. Um, so we have something in my business. So ARV stands for after repair value. It's a it's an industry acronym. Everyone pretty much knows it. We have something in our business we call CCV. That's not an industry acronym. It's an acronym in my company, but it, it stands for current condition value or common condition value, CCV. Okay. What that is, is what is the house worth right now, right? What do we estimate it's worth as it as it, in the condition it's in, right? So current condition value or common condition value assumes that the house is functional and livable, but not updated, okay? So um, the way that, that we look at, so that was a, kind of a sidebar, but the way we look at ARV and CCV, ARV, the best ARV you're gonna get, in my opinion, is always gonna be from the MLS, okay? If you're not a realtor, if you don't have access to MLS, it's fine, don't worry. I, I've been doing this since 08 and I am not a realtor. I have access to the MLS, but I'm not a realtor, right? So that's a relationship thing. but 
if you need to find ARVs, the important thing to remember, and the reason I brought up CCV, the reason I brought up current condition value is because when you're establishing an ARV for a property, you have to omit properties that are not renovated or not updated. You can't factor in like houses that are in bad shape or um, foreclosure price type houses. You can't because you will get, you'll get a conservative ARV, but it's an inaccurate one, right? You need accurate. So if you're, if you don't have access to the MLS, you're not a realtor. Uh, I, my opinion would be to um, find a realtor that does business in your town, not, not a part-time person. I would pick a full-time realtor, someone who knows the industry. And certainly if you can, someone who knows the, the, your target geographic market, right? Someone who, if you're focusing on a certain zip code, like find realtors who sell in that zip code. Now, how do you do that? Well, you can go to Zillow if you want. Go to Zillow, look for houses in that zip code, and then scroll down. And there's always realtors that, that, are, that are selling in that zip code, right? But I would get a hold of someone who knows or has access to the MLS and ask them what the property will be worth at the end of the day, but specifically tell them because realtors are not taught to, to calculate ARV. They're taught to calculate the, the value of a, of a neighborhood or a house in a certain neighborhood, but they will use like foreclosures and houses that are kind of in bad shape. They'll, they'll use them in the calculation because in their world, that's how they do it, right? But in our world, we only want to compare ourselves to houses that are fully renovated. So that's number one. MLS is important. Um, houses that are fully renovated are the only ones that are comparable to the one that you're going to be flipping, not bad, you know, bad houses. Now, if you don't have someone who has access to MLS or you just want to get going now and you don't have a relationship with a realtor, uh, it's less effective, but it's still usable and, and serviceable. Um, services like Zillow, Redfin, some of these online services. But what I would do if it were me and I'm starting over again, is I would find three or four of these kind of services, right? Like Zillow and, and uh, Redfin and Trulia. And I would look, this, look the house up on all of them and kind of get an average or kind of like use all of the data. Like I, I call it a 360 degree view. Don't, don't just take Zillow's word for it because they're rarely you know, right. They're, sometimes they're close in certain areas. They're, they're not. In my area, they're actually not that bad. They're re relatively accurate. But mm -hmm. I, would, I would use as many services as I could find to get a, a 360 degree view. But you really need to find someone who has access to the MLS. So that, that's, that's my, my huge advice there. Um, mm -hmm. But when you're doing that, um, make sure, like I said, you're only looking at houses that are in good condition, like recently renovated, and make sure you're not crossing any major roads or uh, make sure that you, you, the realtor too, if you're looking in a certain town, but it's on the edge or on a near the border of the next town, you can't go into the next town. You have to stay in your town. So little things like that, like people get excited because they'll be looking at a house in this neighborhood. When you cross over like a highway and you're into another section of that town and there's new construction, it'll skew the numbers, right? So you, you have to exclude those kind of houses. If you're looking at a house that was built in 1950 and it's a, a thousand square foot ranch with three bedrooms, you can't compare that to a colonial that's 4,000 square feet and was built last year. Like they're just not the same, right? Has mm -hmm. to be not only in good shape, but it has to be a comparable physical house to what you're looking at. That is great advice, especially I haven't heard it put that way as far as like crossing a street or a highway because people just, I think they, it's, it's maybe they don't know, or maybe it's just because it's a little easier, but when you can just kind of blanket a neighborhood and say, okay, this is the, the dollar per square foot, it's a little bit easier than saying, yeah, but this street 
ties to this school district and this yep. one doesn't. And this one backs up to a highway and it has all this noise and this one doesn't. Yep. So it's just these little things. But I think the hack kind of to, to your point is if you're not uh, a broker or you don't have access to the M MLS, find someone that does and yeah. link up with them and start having a lot of these informational interviews and these conversations. So that I think is, especially for a lot of the, the listenership here is, w2 employees so that's just the best bang for your buck if you don't have hours to do research you can kind of hack someone else's and kind of kind of get that idea there and and i mean that's probably a whole other conversation if flipping should be done as a full job or if it's something you can do on the side but then just to that second part that you kind of you kind of mentioned there as far as where people make the biggest mistakes as far as calculating costs um, any beginner advice for those on that side of the house too, as far as understanding your costs or not over rehabbing something or under rehabbing something and make sure it kind of fits in. Yep. I want to go back just for a minute. You 100% oh, yeah. can flip houses if you have a W2 job, 100%. I did it for the first four years I was flipping. I was, I had a W2 job, right? Um, quick point, my daughter, uh, who's early twenties came to me uh, at the beginning of, uh, last year and said, I want to start flipping houses. Now she has a full-time job. She's a um, social worker at a, at an elementary school. Mm -hmm. And she said, I want to start flipping houses. And I said, okay, I'm not going to do the work for you though. I'll help you. And I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you what to do, but you're going to have to do it. And she's like, okay. And I said, here's what you do. Okay. You're, you want to be a flipper. Fine. So the, probably the quickest and path of least resistance would be I would get on every wholesaler's distribution list, email list that you can find. And I gave her some strategies from doing that, which we can talk about if you want. But I said, get on those lists and I want you to make five offers a day. And, and they don't have to be like, don't overthink it. Like you do, I showed her how to, how to run ARV. I showed her how to do all this. And I said, you make five offers a day. She found three houses in the first two weeks, put them wow. under contract, like brand new investor. And she flipped three houses as a full-time employee, W2 employee. So you can definitely do it. Now back mm. to the question that you asked me, um, when it comes to renovation. So th there's one, one of the biggest, uh, hurdles for someone, this is gonna be super counterintuitive, but hear me out when I say this and trust me on this. If you are someone who knows construction, you're a handyman, you can build, you can fix, you know how to hang drywall, you know how to fix elect electric stuff and plumbing, and you're good at all that stuff, you will have the biggest hurdle to deal with. Now, those of you out there who don't know how to fix anything, can't fix plumbing, can't build anything, take heart, because you probably are in a better uh, position. I can't fix anything to this day, I can't build anything to this day. But what I do have and the skills that I do have is I know exactly what things cost. I know exactly how long they should take. Those are the two skills you want to hone. Mm. Understand cost, understand timing. Because the people who can do the work, guess what they'll do? The, the work, right? And if you're trying to build a business, you can't be swinging a hammer, especially if you have a full-time job. You can't be the one swinging the hammer. And even if you don't have a full-time job, trust me when I tell you, you swinging the hammer is less effective for growing your business than going out and finding deals and raising money. Finding deals and raising money, it should be the two pillar. As a house flipper, raising money, finding deals, those are the two activities that you should think about when you go to bed, and that should be what you think about when you wake up in the morning. If you're swinging a hammer or if you're running to Home Depot to buy more nails, like you're doing $15 an hour work, right? That's not who you want to be. So uh, what I did 
And what I suggest people do when they find a house that they want to flip, even before they get under contract, when they're just going to see it, I would invite a couple of contractors with me and I would walk it with them and I would talk it out with them. Like what I would tell them what I see, what do you see? I would come up with numbers that I think it's going to be, even if it's complete bull crap, because I don't know what I'm doing and compare it to their numbers. And it, unfortunately it's repetition is how you're going to understand what things cost. You're going to have to see all of what's happening and you're going to have to look at the numbers and you're going to have to learn over time. Uh, that being said, in a lot of like, especially in the Midwest, but honestly, I have friends in California that use similar metrics. The number, you know, per square foot, you're probably going to be somewhere between 20 and $25 a square foot, maybe 30 if you're in a really expensive area or an area where um, contractors just have more work than they know what to do with. But I usually use about 22 to $23 a square foot. It's a, it's a real rough number. It's not, you know, super accurate. But if I'm trying to just get within striking distance of what the renovation is going to be, be somewhere between 20 and $25 a square foot. Again, if you're in a super competitive construction, kind of a competitive area where, you know, there's, there's times I have contractors where I can't even give them to pick up the phone sometimes because they're so busy. Right now, COVID-19 era, I have contractors calling me saying, mm -hmm. what do you got? Like, I, I don't have a lot of work. Everyone's backing out. Like, do you have anything? They're begging me to give them something, right? Um, my costs are lower right now because there's, you know, and, and it's getting tougher for them too because I just heard recently uh, people are getting fined for buying things from Home Depot that are not um, critical, you know, not things that you have. So in other words, I'm flipping a house right now. My contractor called me and said, here's the deal. I can't buy, I can't buy kitchen cabinets. They won't sell them to me at Home Depot or anywhere else, but I can buy a bathroom vanity. I can put the vanity in the bathroom. I'm like, wait a minute. He said, bathroom vanity is considered essential. Kitchen cabinets are not. So he's like, I can't, I can't buy your kitchen cabinets. I, I can buy a bathroom vanity. I can buy a toilet, but I can't buy a sink. Like, so anyways, um, mm -hmm. but, but I think going out and, and I, I started bringing contractors with me just when I was looking at houses before I even made an offer. I'm bringing them with me. You have to spend a lot of time with them and get various quotes before you know. But um, it's repetition, man. I, I wish there was a silver bullet. But, but here's the thing I will suggest. It, 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 and I did this on my first flip. The one, one mistake I made during the renovation was my wife and I said, painting the basement was like too expensive. Like we're going to, and there's basements here in Michigan, but we're going to, we're going to paint the basement ourselves. And so we painted it ourselves. We saved like $500, but we held up the construction. We <laughs> held up the contractor by weeks because we couldn't do it every day. We could only do it on the weekends. Right. So it was just like, we saved 500 bucks, but we held the project for probably an extra two or three or four weeks, which ended up costing us close to 500 bucks. Right. So don't do the renovation yourself. If you want us, if you want to flip one house a year and that's all you're going to do, okay, maybe then go in there and try to see what you can do and take your time and mess around and save some money. But if you're trying to start, uh, create a business, right? A, a business, you need to hire people to do these things, and, but you need to know what they cost. You need to know how long they'll take. So when a contractor says, hey, I can do it, it's going to be $30,000. You can go, no, I, you got to break that down for me because, and that's the other thing too, a, a tangible advice is when you're getting bids from contractors, make them itemize it, make them line items, right? Don't, don't let them tell you 
okay, I'll, I'll do everything we talked about. And here's the one big number at the bottom of the sheet. Like it's going to be $30,000. You need to understand what that is so that that's how you learn, right? Mm -hmm. You can't learn what things cost by seeing one big, huge number at the bottom of a page. Like you need to know what does it cost for flooring? What does it cost for paint? What does it cost for, you know, tile work? What does it cost for electric? Like you need to know these things, right? And if you have a project where you don't think the electric is an issue and you don't think there's any plumbing to do, I still always add some amount of money for electric and plumbing because there's inevitably going to be something that has to be done. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, but I think that's, that's like, there were five things at least in that point you just said that were really tangible, like, like the square footage cost, how to actually value things. Um, the plumbing, like, like all these things that I don't know people would think of, or I, I wouldn't have thought of a lot of the things you just said, unless you're actually out there with a contractor or have seen it. And then you can get the reps doing it. Um, and then just, you have an idea of what the cost could be or should be. And then also what I think a lot of people use as maybe a holdup when they're getting into this is I don't know what to rehab. So doing oh, it with yeah. that approach is, I think people kind of forget that contractors do this every day and if they work in that neighborhood that market they can give input they're not like just these hammer swinging robots i mean they see what looks good and what doesn't good if they're yeah. good at it they have a great eye for it and you can walk through it and say hey i was thinking about putting this there and they could say no one in this neighborhood has that or you're saying no nah, i was probably going to not do that and they would say no you kind of need that in this neighborhood if you want to be competitive so Totally. I think that can be kind of the first point you said about the realtors, how to find the deals and how to know what stuff costs. Very similar with the, with the um, contractors of, they know the markets the same way. The one, one uh, thing that I think people get stuck on, if you had any advice or input here, and it might come just from doing and respecting people's time, uh, COVID-19 is definitely changing that. I had a similar instance where I bumped into a contractor I work with at a Home Depot and he's saying, if there's anything you need, just let us know because we're not sure what our next project is, but yeah. it wasn't kitchen cabinets, luckily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, how can someone reach out to contractors and start building those relationships and maybe get them to do a walkthrough without um, feeling like they're wasting that person's time or, you know, even getting a call back from a contractor? How do you, how do you, you know, think people should do that? Yeah. You have to be really careful. Contractors um, will stop having faith in you if you bring them out to several um, potential jobs and don't give them one, right? They need, they need to get that work. So the first time you give a contractor a job and he gets paid like that, that person, you've just, you've created some goodwill with them and they'll probably go along for the ride a little farther. Contractors that you don't know yet, you have to be very careful. Like I would not bring the same contractor out to five different houses that I'm looking at. I would try to find five contractors and bring each to one right? They're not going to blow up if you go, if they go to one and you don't give it to them, you bring them to five and don't give them one. You'll never get them to the sixth one. Probably you'll never get them to the third one, right? So you have, you super have to be, um, you have to respect people's time. But one thing I will tell you, and this is, this is huge. I just like, this was an epiphany that I had. It's not fair to say I had it. It's something someone said to me. They, they, it's a tip they told me, but it felt like, like this is the greatest thing I've ever heard about contractors. So Contractors are difficult. Okay, I'm not gonna lie to you. They can be tough. Um, if you find a good one, take care of them. Um, but I have found most contractors that I use in on Craigslist or like Thumbtack and Angie's List, like that's where I go, right? It's where I go to find them. However, once you find a contractor you like, and let's just say 
uh, it's, it's a plumber. You just, whatever you need plumbing done. And, and you had a plumber and they were like on it, they're professional. They got it done. Great price. Super like professional, right? Most people go, Oh, I love my plumber. And then, then they just go out and try to find an electrician and a, and a, and a rough carpenter and a roofer all on their own. Ask the the contractors that you like that perform well and are professional and they show up and they do what they say they're going to do. Ask them who they recommend to do plumbing or electric or a roof or, you know, hang cabinets or concrete. Like, and then when you find a roofer that you love, ask him, who are your contacts that you love working with? Who do you love mm. working with that does electric or whatever? So I have spent a lot of years just trying on my own to find all these things and never bothering to ask the, the one contractor that I love, but he's like, I don't do flooring. Well, who do you work with that does flooring that you would recommend that you love working with and ask them, you will build a better uh, stable of contractors by using the ones you love to find the next great one in a different like aspect of the renovation. Like that was huge for me when I realized that I was like, what in the heck? The other thing I do is, and this is kind of cool. It's a cool little hack. <clears throat> I never did it before, for, especially I started off as a house flipper. I flipped houses for about six years and that's what I was. I didn't wholesale a thing. I didn't even know wholesaling was really. I was flipping houses full time. Then I, at some point, and I, we can talk about, but I switched my model from flipping to wholesaling. And now I'm more of a wholesaler. I do some flips, but I'm mostly wholesaling. But one thing I've, I've learned, because I hired an assistant and I'm asking her to help me with some of these flip stuff, do some of the legwork and some of the communication with contractors. She doesn't know anything about flipping or she doesn't know how to find contractors. Like she's, she's struggling a little bit. So what we did was we put an ad on Craigslist and we, we put a link to a, a Google form in there. So basically it's like, Hey, looking for general contractors who can do whole house renovations. Um, please click this link if you're interested and they'll click it and there'll be a set of questions. And these questions that I have learned that I need to ask contractors before I start working with them. First, I mean, obviously name and phone number and email, but next question is, have you ever worked with an investor before, right? If the answer is no, I'm not going to call them. I, I don't want to deal with them because I know they want retail pricing, right? Um, do you work in whatever city the project's in? Like, will you, do you go to that city? Do you work there, right? Do you have reliable transportation? How long have you been doing, um, uh, you know, fix and flip? How long have you been a contractor? Do you have references? Are you licensed? Are you insured? Like I ask them these questions on the form and they hit send and it populates a spreadsheet and I can just go to the spreadsheet for any, I want roofers. I'll go to my roofer spreadsheet and I'll see a list of people and I can just sort it by licensed, insured, has references, will work in the city. They've worked with investors before. Bam. That's somebody I want to talk to as opposed to putting a, a um, putting an ad on Craigslist, putting your phone number, having your phone blow up with 15 contractors that you'll never want to work with anyway, right? Like we fil they filter themselves by going through this Google form. That has been such a huge time saver for us. And it's allowed us to sort and look at contractors that we actually want to talk to because it looks like they might be someone we want to work with so much faster. We went from, I can't find a plumber to go to this city to we have 15 of them now that have told us specifically they'll go to that city and they work with investors. So that was huge for us. Yeah, that is, that is so good. I've never heard it put that way. And I've heard a lot of people, they've just quit on Craigslist because it's, it can be kind of a cesspool. But at the same time, if you build a layer, a wall like you have, 
it can be gold and you're not getting the phone calls. You're actually flipping the switch that you can now pick. And what I love about the Google forms, Google sheets is then you could just convert that form into a spreadsheet and it stays live and you can just keep sorting it. So that's an amazing tip. Wow. Mike, that's, that's huge. It also tells you which contractors can follow directions, right? So I've had contractors that have, They've seen the ad on Craigslist and they've sent me a message through Craigslist saying, hey, I'm interested in the job. And it's like, I will never call that person. They couldn't even click the link that I asked them to and, f- and answer five or six questions, right? So yeah, it's been huge. And like you said, it's important that it's, it's a living thing, right? It's just, it stays out there and it keeps, that spreadsheet just keeps getting filled. So 100%. Yeah, it's huge. Um, Wow. Yeah. I feel like we could stay on this because this is really good. It's like the tangible stuff, the tips. Um, So there's a couple other tips that I have um, around wholesaling and kind of your process there. But I think that's a good segue. We kind of just jumped right into some tangible stuff. But can you just bring um, us up to speed on maybe why you transitioned from flipping to wholesaling and then kind of what you're doing today, where your your business is and uh, what what everything looks like? Totally. Yep. I can absolutely do that. I will say this for the record. I think house flipping is awesome, um, but I'll tell you why I switched. So I was using, I, I recommended finding a realtor for like ARV and things like that. That's exactly what I did for the first four or five years. I used a realtor and I, I relied on them and trusted them to tell me what they would be able to sell the house for after renovation, right? They were doing that for me. And I hit a point in my business where my realtor grossly, missed the number and what he thought it would sell for. And I believed him totally blindly because he lived in the city that he was giving me the number on the house. So I was like, okay, cool. So I bought the house, renovated it. I was on budget. I was on time and we didn't sell for even close to what he thought it would sell for. And nothing changed in the, in the economy or the environment. It wasn't, wasn't, um, it was his fault basically to say this bluntly. <laughs> and, and so I, I got killed on that deal. And on that same deal, my realtor halfway through it kind of flaked out on me a little bit. He started trying to charge me for things that were not really real things. And, and, and he was trying to give me receipts for stuff that wasn't even on my job. And he just sort of flaked out a little bit. So at the end of that job where I didn't do well on the flip at all, I, I didn't lose money, but I basically broke even. My, I had to work, I had to change contractors because this guy totally lost it. I don't know if something happened in his personal life or whatever, but he just sort of like flaked out on me. I was, I was staring down the barrel of not having a contractor and not trusting my realtor anymore, but I was still looking for deals, right? So deals started coming in still, but I was like, I don't have a realtor to help me with the MLS. I don't have a contractor and I got this opportunity in front of me. What do I do? So I got it under contract. It was with a homeowner, a private a seller. And I'm like, I, I don't have the resources right now to do this. So I, I knew the other, real, the other flippers in my, in my market. I had a good relationship with them. And I just called one that I, I knew did good work and they were legit and they had money. And I said, hey, man, I got this deal. Like I've had my contractor flaked on me, my realtor flaked on me. Like, do you want it? Like, are you interested in this? And he's like, give me the numbers. And so I told him the numbers and I, I just raised the price by $15,000. Okay. And I told you my first deal, what I made was $15,000 on the entire flip. Mm-hmm. I raised the price by $15,000 and said, is this something you want to, you want to do? And he's like, give me 10 minutes and I'll let you know. Call me back in 10 minutes. He goes, I'll take it. I was like, Whoa, I just made $15,000 in like 10 minutes. Like this is <laughs> awesome. So I'm like, okay, cool. So we did the deal. 
I got another house in across, come across my desk, an opportunity. It was almost identical to the first one, very similar. I called the same guy and I said, I've got another one. This was like two weeks, three weeks later. I said, I got another one. Are you interested in it? He goes, give me the numbers. And I gave him the numbers. He goes, I'll take it. I was like, holy crap. I just made $30,000 in a month. And I didn't, I didn't deal with one contractor. I didn't have to deal with one seller or, or seller. I, I didn't have to deal with one um, buyer. I didn't have to deal with like homeowners, like banks, none of it. I just called a guy and said, do you want it? And I marked it up $15,000 and it was done. And I was like, whoa, this is good. I said, now I can either go out and find a contractor, start that process, vet them out, give them a job, see what they do, find another realtor or go get my realtor's license. Or I can keep looking for, for, um, for deals, looking for leads and then just give them to this dude. Right. So I did that like another one or two times to the same guy. He's like, dude, I'm, I'm maxed out. I don't have, I don't have any more money. Like I have to finish these projects before I can buy any more. I'm like, okay. So now I have to find more buyers. How do I do that? So I just start calling other buyers, uh, I should say buyers, flippers. I had to start calling other flippers that I knew and then eventually built a, buy, a, a list of buyers, people who are interested in just that's sort of how it went. I was like, I like the velocity of wholesaling. It suits my personality. I'm a hyper, hyper, um, uh, I'm just not patient. I'm not patient. I like things to happen fast. And when I saw that I could get a property under contract and I could sell that contract within days, that appeals to me a lot. Mm. And I cut out appraisals. I cut out contractors. I cut out realtors. And I was like, man, this suits my personality. So I never looked back. I started wholesaling. And, and frankly, for about four years, I didn't flip one thing. I wholesaled everything. And wow. it's only been in the last six to eight months that I've come back to flipping strategically some properties here and there because um, we got to a point in our wholesaling business where over the last three years, we've averaged around a hundred deals a year. So we're doing pretty high volume. We're doing a lot of marketing. Like we had a pretty good machine built, but what we were finding was we would get something under contract and we evaluate it just like a flipper would, cause that's who we're selling to. So we need to know how they're going to look at this. And we would have um, certain houses where we'd say they really should be paying X amount for this house, but no one's offering X amount for some reason. So why don't we just do it ourselves? Why don't we flip it ourselves? Right? So in our business, it's always a question of, okay, if we're going to, if, if we could flip it and make $30,000 and we can wholesale it and make $25,000, we're going to wholesale it, right? I don't care. Mm -hmm. If we're going to wholesale and make 20,000, we still might do it. But once it starts getting into a certain point, it's like, well, if we wholesale, it, we'll make 15 in a week, or we can make 30,000 in three months. Now it's a decision. It's a business decision, right? So we've started opting for flipping more of those types of opportunities than wholesaling them if we think we can maximize the profit on it. Amazing answer. So I think you just laid out exactly what people are curious of. What is wholesaling? What's the appeal of it? And why flip or why wholesale? And it's interesting because we've had a couple uh, wholesalers on the show recently and they've walked through very similar. It seems like they have a very similar um, uh, I would say skill set and like profile type as you like they're action oriented. They're not really risk averse. They love velocity. They're not the most patient people and they're really good at building systems. Yep. And that combination, they kind of got out of the flipping game and into the wholesale game. But it is interesting to hear how you talk about what deals you would still take down yourself because you can, and then what deals you would put out to market as wholesale. So hearing that there might be people listening to this right now thinking, 
all right, well, this sounds like the best business ever. I can make 30 grand a month. Um, sign me up. Like right, this is yeah. just, where yeah. do I sign? And, and the money starts flowing in. So like, what yeah. are the challenges? What, okay. where are let the me, difficult- Let me throw a little cold water on it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, please. Okay, I'll say this. this. This is just my opinions, by the way, right? So please, no one take this as gospel. I'm telling you what I have learned over 10 years is my total opinion. If I had a nine to five job and I was starting from scratch, okay? I had to start all the way over again. Know what I know now in my head, but not have any resources, just start over. And I have a full-time job. I would start as a flipper personally. I think flipping lends itself to being able to do it while you have a full-time job and it's the least amount of financial exposure. Now, most people will say, no, I want to be a a wholesaler because I don't need any money. I don't have to buy the property, right? So I don't need money. I'm going to be a wholesaler. And there's a humongous uh, fallacy there, right? there's There's a misconception about wholesaling. I had this conversation with, uh, I'm not going to say who was a family member of mine. And, and he was interested in flipping houses. And he's like, house flippers have way more risk than wholesaler. You guys don't buy the properties. We're the ones spending money on the properties. We're taking all the risk. You shouldn't make a lot of money. I'm like, hold on a second. Okay. It depends on who you're talking to. But at that time, when he was talking to me, it wasn't that long ago, I said, listen, the scenario that I laid out at the beginning of the show where I said, if you do it right as a flipper, you're never really financially exposed because you're buying it undervalued, right? The day you buy it, it's worth more than you bought it for. And the day you sell it, it's worth more than you have into it, right? So if, if you do your numbers right in the beginning, you're, you're relatively safe on your investment, okay? Wholesalers, now let's talk about a wholesaler that has a business that's scaled up, okay? Not a wholesaler that has one deal every six months. I'm talking about someone who's doing three, five, eight, 10 deals a, a month, right? <clears throat> I was spending, not right now I'm not, and we can talk about what I'm doing now for, to find deals, but three or four months ago, I was spending $30,000 a month on marketing, okay? Marketing, $30,000 of marketing in a month, there is no guarantee that money's coming back to me. Not at all, right? Mm-hmm. I, can see, I can see that there is some consistency when I look at history of how this all normally goes, but the reality is I spent $30,000 and if the economy goes to, goes to heck overnight, like that 30,000 is gone. It's not in a property, right? So wholesalers, the cost of wholesaling or the risk, and the, and the one thing that I can say that people don't always realize is, yes, when you get a deal under contract, from that point forward, theoretically, you need no money because you're just, you're assigning the contract, you're selling the contract, there's no money needed. But to find deals consistently, consistently and reliably takes a lot of times some, some money, it takes capital, right? You can go out and you can drive for dollars, which means driving around looking for houses that are in disrepair and, and taking down the information and then finding the owner and send them a card or whatever. That's fine, you can do that. You can't scale that. It's very difficult to scale that because it's, it's human, like it's your effort, it's in there, right? You can put out bandit signs, very inexpensive, but still cost something. So there's a cost associated with finding deals as a wholesaler. Some of it can be like, your time for sure, but any, any method of finding leads that only takes time and no money is almost certainly not scalable. The scalable ways to find leads almost always cost something, okay? So as you're like, you, you do one deal and three months later you do another deal, six months later you do another deal and you go, I can't quit my job like this. I need to reliably and consistently do, let's just say it's two deals a month. That's what you calculate to replace your income. I need two deals a month. Well, you're not going to do two deals a month, usually just driving around looking for houses. You're going to have to do some form of direct mail, PPC, 
bandit signs, something. You're going to have to do something that you can scale because it becomes a numbers game at that point. All, all marketing, all lead generation in real estate is a numbers game. If you send out one letter every month, good luck. You're never going to get a deal because that's not how it works. You have to send out thousands of letters to hope you get a deal or two, right? When I started off, I, I started sending out 500 postcards a month, 500. I got, for the first two months, I got one deal per month, right? Or every, it was like three weeks later. So it was awesome. That's not the world we live in anymore. It's marketing direct mail is a little more saturated. And, you know, now we're sending out as, as little as like two or three months ago, we were sending out like 60,000 pieces of mail to get 10 to 12 deals like that. That was just the math. Okay. Um, luckily at that volume, the cost of the cards and the cost of the mail is super low, but still between that PPC bandit signs and some other miscellaneous stuff we were doing, we were spending, about $30,000 a month on marketing, right? That's just how it is, right? So when you look at it that way, you go, well, okay, I don't I guess I want to be a wholesaler. I, I'll just, I'll be, a, I'll be a flipper. Flippers have more, um, they have things available to them that are not available to wholesalers. And the number one thing is other wholesalers, right? So when my daughter wanted to flip, first thing I told her was get on wholesalers list. Every single wholesaler in the city, you need to be on their distribution. And when they put out properties like available, run the numbers, and make an offer that makes sense for you. I don't care what they ask. Make an offer that makes sense for you and make lots of them. It's a numbers game. And that's how she found three houses so fast. As a wholesaler, it's difficult if not impossible for me to run a business buying from other wholesalers. I would have to find a wholesaler who's really good at negotiating prices and really bad at pricing his houses to me, right? <laughs> that's the only way it would work because it just doesn't work that way. So I can't go on the MLS as a wholesaler because it's difficult, if not impossible, to wholesale off of the MLS. So I'm, I'm, I have to resort to going direct to the homeowner, which is fantastic because there's a lot of opportunity there, but it, it costs money to get in front of these folks, and it's a numbers game. Last thing before we move on this, there's so much tangible advice in this last like 20 minutes. Like I've been jotting down notes for anyone that's thinking about doing this. Like it just th rewind this part. This part has been so good and, and it's just so tangible. There was one last thing I just wanted to dig into. You said you told your daughter to get on wholesalers lists. Mm -hmm. How do you recommend people do that? So there's a couple of ways. There's a, there's a slow burn and there's kind of a faster way of doing it. So the slow way of doing it, it's very, it's, it's very qu high quality, but it's a little, takes a little more time. Go to the RIAs, go to the events, local events, meetups, all these things, and just start talking to people, find out who the wholesalers are in the room and specifically who the real like players are, the ones that really have good you know deals that come across their, their desk a lot and get on their list. The great news about getting on a wholesaler's list is they want you on the list. You're not asking them to do you a favor, like you're doing them a huge favor. So get on their list. A faster way of going about it is um, there are websites, specifically the one that I told my daughter was Bigger Pockets, right? Bigger Pockets is a, a, good, a good location where when you get on there and make a profile, you can do a search for people in your market who are keyword flip, flipper, keyword wholesaler, or buyer's list, like these kind of keywords, you can search for people in your area who have those words in their profile and start finding all the wholesalers. That is a really fast way to build that list. Okay, perfect. That's, again, very tangible and very actionable. Um, you're doing a couple other things now. Uh, like something that, that a lot of people talk about is content creation in addition to doing a business. So you have a podcast, 
you've you you write books you've put uh, other video content out there can you talk to the listenership a little about your strategy on that um what you have in the works right now but also yep. how that's kind of aligned with your trajectory of real estate investing yeah when i started my podcast um just start real estate is the name of it when i started it it was really for me it was a credibility builder and it was, I was really looking for um, private lenders. Like I was, I was really trying to put that out there so I could attract private lenders. And I did. Um, but I also wanted to, the more like, like selfless part of me, when I started doing real estate flipping, I had a really hard time finding people who would help me, like give me good, honest advice and take the time to answer like what I consider to be dumb questions, you know, just like basic stuff. And I know what stops a lot of people when they're starting out is they feel like their questions are dumb. And they're kind of embarrassed to ask. So I went on my podcast and started answering all of those kind of like newbie beginner questions that I knew people had because I had them. And it, I took way too long to get it figured out sometimes because I just, I was embarrassed to ask. I was a little bit like felt stupid. So I started answering those kind of questions. That's why I did that. Um, you're right. I am, I'm writing a book. So I was a flipper for six years, turned my model into wholesaling. And right about around that time, or like a, eight months after I made that decision, I joined a mastermind. And I think masterminds are huge. They are game changers for people. And if you're not in one, you need to be in one, I think. Because surround, not, it's not only just that whole, you're the average of the five people you surround yourself with. I think that's true. But being around, <clears throat> sometimes being a, a real estate investor can be lonely. Because when I started, I told you my background is blue collar, um, very much you know, union and, and like, like working in a factory and that kind of thing. I didn't know anybody in my life who was an entrepreneur. There was no one to talk to. So I needed to be around people who were doing what I wanted to do. And in, in a lot of cases, they were farther down the road than me. So I could see the proof. I could see that somebody was doing it and I could be around them. So I think that's huge. But when I, when I flipped that all around and I joined the mastermind, I took my business from at the time I was doing two to three deals a month. I, I turned that into over 10 deals, 10 or more deals a month with, within less than 12 months. Like I changed my business hockey stick to use that term in a, in 12 months time. I went from doing like, we were on about a $250,000 uh, profit pace to over a million in 12 months. Right? So people would ask me after I did that and I would talk about it. They'd be like, well, what did you do? Obviously that's the question, right? How did you do that? What did you do? What are the things, what are the steps you took? And I would answer this question time and time again. And, and it just like dawned on me like three years later, like I should write a book about this because I'm getting asked the same question and I'm giving the exact same answer. So if I put it in a book, it would be helpful for people. And so that's what I did. I wrote a book. It's called level jumping. Um, not a super intuitive title, but it's basically what you would guess, right? I, I want to teach people how to not just increase or grow their business one step at a time. How do you skip steps to, to go past some of these common mistakes so you can really take the leap? And I'll tell you a little, this is a little like, I don't talk about this as much, but it's kind of a funny little anecdote. When I joined the mastermind uh, a few years back, the people who joined at the same time, there's about 20 of us. The guy who ran the mastermind said, I'm going to run a contest. The first business that breaks the $1 million profit barrier, I'm going to send them and their family to Hawaii. And I, I called my wife from the mastermind meeting and I'm like, hey, this is what they put out there for. She's like, 
you will win that. We are going to Hawaii. So mm-hmm. I did it. Me and my partner, my business partner, wow. uh, we got to a million dollars in less than 12 months. We won the contest and we actually strong armed him into sending us to Fiji instead of Hawaii. <laughs> we went to Fiji. So, so I was incentivized for sure, but, um, but there's certain steps I took and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll kind of summarize some of them, right? A lot of it was, I was sort of treating every new deal I did as like this brand new adventure. And I wasn't systematizing. I wasn't creating processes that were repeatable. Everything was like custom to that particular deal. And what I realized was, it's hard to scale something that doesn't have a process and doesn't have a system in place. And it doesn't have to be elaborate, right? Whatever you do right now is your system, but document it so that you're aware of it. And the other thing that really was a game changer for me was hiring. I thought, and I couldn't hire unless I was this humongous business. That's not true. There are many ways that you can hire people, bring them in on your team where it doesn't break the bank, but hiring people is exactly how you grow your business. You can get any business to a point, but you will hit a ceiling. You'll hit a ceiling on what you can do and what you can handle on your own. And good luck going on vacation if the business counts on just you, right? So I started building a team. And when I started building the team and creating processes, like literally the, the, the jet pack just went off and I just, I rocketed. We, mm. Our business went, it just exploded. That's awesome. That's really cool. You, you touched on a couple of things that I usually ask later in the show around masterminds and who do you surround yourself with? But um, just hearing you talk about that, that is amazing. I mean, I'm a believer in it. Um, I'm, I'm part of some groups. I run a group and um, I have a coach and it's just, you know, some people have different views on it. I don't know why it's funny. I talk about this with, with a couple of the groups that I'm in now is like within real estate, um, it's a lot more accepted versus the corporate world for whatever reason. It's like hoity-toity or like yeah. airy-fairy, like people look down on it, you know, but in this world, it's so apparent. Maybe it's just entrepreneurship in general or business, but if you look at anyone that has achieved, they have a coach, they have a mastermind, they're around the right people, yep. they're leveling, leveling up their ideas, they're challenging, challenging each other, and they're, they're really making these strides that it's not sequential, it's hockey stick, you know, just to use the same yep. term. So um, I, I can't wait to check that book out because I, I really can relate and resonate with what you just talked about there. Do you mind sharing or um, did you say the name of the group that, that you're in or you were in? I did not yet. Um, so the name of the group, it's called Seven Figure Flipping. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a group of high level investors who, you know, meet up three or four times a year. There's a Facebook group. Um, there's, there's a lot of uh, assets within the group that we share for sure. But the, the biggest thing is just surrounding yourself with like a support group of people that are in the same boat as you, like they're trying to do the same thing. So uh, if you're interested, you can go to sevenfigureflipping.com and check that out. Uh, it's run, actually it's run by a friend of mine, Bill Allen. Uh, I'm a, I'm a member of the group. I'm, I help run it. I'm one of the, one of the people that kind of help steer the ship there, but, uh, it's run by Bill Allen, fantastic group. And, um, you know, to me, I was, I'll be honest. I was against masterminds. I was against mentors. I was against all that. Mm -hmm. And guess what? It took me six years to change that attitude. But the minute I did, I did more in the first year that I was involved in a mastermind than I had done in the six years previous combined. Like it was not even close. And it opened up my eyes to the value of surrounding yourself with peers, but also surrounding yourself with people who are maybe a little farther down the road. And trust me when I tell you that people who've been where you want to be or they're where you want to go, they can point out the potholes. They can point out the pitfalls and things that you're going to do wrong. And so there was a guy in that group where I basically said, you are 
running the business I want. What did you do? And he's like, well, here's what I did. And we had a conversation. He kind of laid it out. And I said, how long did it take you to, to do this? Like everything you just told me, what was the time? Well, how many years did it take you to do that? And he said, it took me like five or six years to, to, to kind of go through this process. And I, and I thought, okay, but he didn't know what he was doing right and wrong. And he made mistakes. And I said, I wonder if I have the roadmap, if someone tells me what they did and it took him five or six years and I know the answers, can I compress that? Like, can I do it faster? Cause again, I'm, I'm, I'm not patient. So we can, we basically did that in 12 months. Like we got our business to where we wanted it to be in 12 months. It was, it was really eye opening for someone who was sort of like, cause my thought was, eh, it's all on the internet. Anything anyone can tell me, I'll find it. And it's true. You, you can theoretically, right? But you're going to have to wade through so much bad information and misinformation, and it's going to take time, you know, and a lot of people aren't forthcoming with their mistakes. They're forthcoming with their, with their success and, their, and, their, and their, um, their wins, but they're not as forthcoming with their losses and failures, right? So if you get in a room with someone who will be honest with you about what they did wrong, that's even more valuable because mm. now you're sidetrack, you're, you're sidestepping some of these potholes that you're going to step in. So we were able to compress it. I'm super impatient. So you don't have to do it in a year for sure. But the point is just get around people who can, who can kind of, you can stand on their shoulders and see what they can see because you can only see as far as you can see yourself, right? You get on someone's shoulders, you can see a lot farther. So that's what a mastermind is. And you know, seven figure flipping, I think is the best one because mm -hmm. unfortunately in our industry, there are people out there that are not credible. They're not reliable you know, they're trying to make a buck and that's, that's unfortunate. So I think finding a group of good people with good ethics, good morals, good hearts. I think that's important. I love what you said about um, compressing the time, because I think that's what the value of these groups is. The information is all out there, but then again, it's kind of like, I forget that, that expression. If it was just about the information, librarians would be billionaires. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I like that. But it's, it's <laughs> not that it is all out there. You can watch, you can't watch as much YouTube content that's scattered in 200 places, you don't have, there's not enough time in the day. I mean, there's no. 300 hours of YouTube content created every minute. So it's not about that. And if you know your, your value, your time, uh, your, your cost per hour, your value per hour, yep. and you can think about the savings that you got out of uh, getting in this group, five years of your life compressed to one, I mean, four years, how do you quantify that? What dollar value? So it's, it's a different mindset. It's a different thinking. So I'm really glad you said that. Uh, last question before we move on, just mentorships and groups. Um, for someone listening right there, listening right now, that maybe is on the edge. They've maybe heard about it. They're, they're ready to go. They're ready to step out of the corporate criticism bubble and actually get some coaching. But they're not sure if who they're talking to is trying to sell them. If there's yeah. value in it, do I need a coach? Do I need a mentor? Any advice for someone that's considering all of the above options and which would be right for them? Yeah, it's tough. Uh, I know, I know people who have gotten sort of um, misled by people. I, I think first of all, like you said it, but I'm going to echo it. Everybody who's had high level of success have had some sort of coach mentor a mastermind, a team that they were involved in that helped them raise their game. So I think number one is realizing that you probably need someone like that in your life is, is huge. Um, the second thing is don't make snap decisions. You know, I would investigate whoever you're going to talk to and have, have a conversation with them. First of all, by the way, have a conversation. So, um, and really decide whether or not you resonate with them. If what they've achieved is what you want to achieve, you know, sometimes people get real, um, 
they get real lured by, by what people's apparent income is. So I would talk to the people that you were considering uh, aligning yourself with and, uh, and, ha- and, and take kind of a slow approach to that relationship. Don't jump in right away and, and just use, you know, unfortunately, it's a little bit like this. Somebody says, how do you pick a mechanic, right? I can't fix cars. It's a little bit, there's a little luck there, right? I don't know if the mechanic that I pick is great because I can't evaluate what he's telling me because I don't know what he knows, right? I don't have that skill set. So uh, I would get um, referrals too, like make sure whoever you're going to go with can, can give you some referrals or something. Um, I'm, I'm happy. Like I, I always do this because I'm super conscious of people getting burned. So if someone wants to reach out to me, I will give you an honest assessment of I think some, there's somebody out there that can help you, right? Like I don't think just going to the first person you, you find is a good idea because I think there's just there's, for every good helper, good mentor, good coach, there's three bad ones, right? So you got to be really, really careful. So referrals are good. Um, but I think, listen, here's the bottom line. You can't overanalyze this either, right? If you find someone that you think makes sense and they sound good and, and you've taken the time, and, like just go for it. Right. But, but be willing to course correct. If it doesn't feel like it's going the way it should, or if they're not delivering what they promise, like reserve the right to say, I screwed up. I made a mistake. I'm going to have to go in a different direction. Like the people who get overly concerned that they pick the right person will never pick anybody. You know, they'll overanalyze it forever. So I think knowing that you need a mentor, knowing that you need a coach, knowing that a mastermind is, is going to be helpful for you is number one, find one, do your due diligence, make the decision and go for it. And then course correct if you have to. Love that. Mike, you ready for the rapid fire wind down? 100%. Love it. All right, let's do it. Um, Do you have a system or strategy to plan your weeks and your days? And if so, why do you do it that way? (laughs) Yeah, I'm the worst. I've tried every uh, (laughs) app. I've tried every journal. I've tried everything. Uh, What works for me may not work for everybody. I use Google Calendar as, as like my Bible. If it's not in my Google calendar, it does not happen. It's not going to happen. I even use it as a to-do list. I'll put uh, my to-dos at the top of the, like, you know, uh, one in the morning to five in the morning when I'm not going to be doing anything anyways. That's where I list all my to-dos, but I'm a huge whiteboard guy too. Like I just am like right now I'm looking right in front of my desk. I have a whiteboard that I use and it's sort of like, what am I going to do in the next three days? Kind of a thing. Like it's my hot list of things I want to do. And then it, that's also in my Google calendar if it's something I'm going to do. So Google calendar and whiteboards are huge for me. I don't look at apps. I'll put something in an app and I won't look at it. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I need it to be in front of me. So whiteboard on my Google calendar, I rely on heavily. Cool. I like that answer. Self-awareness to know what you'll use and what you, what you won't use. Cause it sounds like you looked at a lot of things. Totally. Um, cool. Uh, you touched on one there with, with Google suite or calendar. Uh, are there any websites, apps, tools that you use on a day-to-day basis to drive your business forward? So my assistant uses Trello because when I have to go in there, I like the visual, uh, I like the card system where it's like doing, you know, whatever, not doing, doing done or whatever. Like, yep. so I don't use it cause I know I won't, but I like when <laughs> I have a question, I can go in there and I can see at a glance what's happening. Um, I think a CRM is, we didn't talk about this, but I think when you're in real estate, a CRM is non-negotiable. It's critical. You have to have one. You don't have to overthink it and you don't have to get the best one or you don't have to be an expert, but having some place where you keep all of your leads so that you can keep track of them, set reminders and things like that. Like that's important. People who write leads on yellow sticky notes and throw them in their car, you're, you're missing stuff. You're missing out because there is the, you know, the follow-up and the database long-term is where you're going to make a lot of your money. So 
having a database of people that you can go back to, you know, every month or every couple months and, and check and see if they're ready to sell. But that database and that CRM is important. So I think a CRM Podio is one that a lot of people use. Um, we're experimenting with a new one right now. I won't mention it because I don't know if I like it, but um, we're trying a new one right now. But CRM is important. People overlook the importance of that. I think if you're going to be a wholesaler, for sure you need a CRM and you also need uh, someone needs to answer the phone. We didn't get into like the mechanics of wholesaling, but the big mistake people make is they'll, they'll spend money on marketing or they'll spend time on marketing. They'll drive leads and they'll let it go to a voicemail. That's the worst, right? Or even like a third party service as an ideal, somebody needs to answer that phone. And then, so having a phone service like call rail or something like that, where um, you have a call tree and you have reports and you can see where your um, leads are coming from. So when you're spending money on leads, you know, like how to quantify whether or not a certain marketing campaign worked for you, you need to know where the leads are coming from. So having that, that, um, that call tree is important. Got it. The next, well, I, because I know now we, we did kind of miss on a couple of things within wholesaling. I almost feel like Mike, you have dropped so much tangible value. We might need to do a part two because this is just like, I've been taking so many notes throughout this, but just on that note, the next question is typically about leverage help or like, deeper into system. So just let's say we're talking about a wholesaling scenario. Um, it seems like if the phone starts ringing, like let's say you talked a little bit about the marketing strategies. Let's say you're spending, you're, you're sending 60,000 direct mail pieces and then you're following up and you maybe have cold callers or, you know, other forms of going, going outward. But as far as the inbound, um, can you just talk to the process or systems you have for managing or tracking those leads? I think it's important. So this sort of bleeds into KPIs, which I'm a humongous uh, uh, supporter of. I think KPI stands for key performance indicators. You need to know what's working in your business. So when, a call, when we put out the marketing, right, it generates calls. Most of it generates calls. Some of it are, are web forms. Like we do have our website and we do pay-per-click, which is like Google AdWords. We do that. So that'll generate sometimes a web form fill out that'll come to us. Um, but it also generates phone calls because our phone number is obviously in our website. It's in our PPC ads. So the phone rings. Uh, we route everything through a system called CallRail, uh, callrail.com. It's it's really just a it's a call tree. It's a it's a decision making uh, uh, software. So when calls come in, it'll it'll tag uh, the phone number that it came in from. And you should frankly, whenever you're doing your marketing, any significant marketing channel that you're using should have its own phone number. And then as that marketing channel matures and gets bigger, let's just say direct mail specifically. If you start sending out like a little bit of direct mail, one number's fine. If you, if you have a huge geographic footprint for your, for your mail, let's just say you're sending it to an entire city, you should break that down into maybe zip codes or, or parts of the city. How are you going to do it? But you don't want to send out 60,000 mail pieces with one phone number. You have no clue which part of your mail is working, which isn't because you're not tracking. So we use CallRail for that decision making, you know, comes in. CallRail is also good because it has reporting and things. So you can see reports on how many calls you're getting, how many are being answered live, how long your calls are and all this. So you can train your staff too, right? So if it comes in and says, uh, we're missing half of our calls, like why? Why are we missing? Do we need more people or is there something going wrong? Well, you might see we're missing half our calls, but the average call length is 45 minutes. Well, you're on the phone too long with these people, right? Like you can't have a phone call that long. We will miss calls. You need to find out what's going on. And that's a whole, like we could do a whole show on how do you answer calls and what's important and what, how do you, what's the most successful way to, to take that from a phone call to a, 
an appointment and then an appointment to a contract, right? So the calls come in, they come into, in our world, they come into uh, phone people that work for us, they answer the phones. We train them up. It's a whole, like a skill set answering that phone. Once the, uh, we take that call, if they're not interested in sending an appointment, they'll go into a follow-up sequence for us. So we'll keep kind of like touching them um, in the beginning pretty aggressively. Like every week we'll, we'll reach out two or three times, whether it be uh, ringless voicemail or email or a text message or even like a physical call them back and say, hey, we talked to you last week. Um, you mentioned you might want us to come out and take a look. It wasn't a good time. You had to talk to your wife. You had to talk to your husband or whatever. Like, have you had a chance to do that? We'd love to come out and talk to you, right? So there's like this follow-up sequence that happens once someone calls in. But if they call in and we're able to get an appointment, then that goes into our salespeople's calendar. And it's like kind of a round robin system. So um, however many sales guides you have, we just, so that we're not playing favorites or nobody seems like they're getting all the good leads. Um, every appointment just goes into the next salesperson calendar until we get back to the first one. They go out, they talk to the homeowner. The, the goal there is to get the contract on the first meeting. I think if you leave the house, your chance of getting a contract plummets, goes down significantly. So we want to get the contract in that first, um, in that first appointment. We get the contract to first appointment. Hopefully we bring it back in our world that goes into, um, uh, the bucket of what we call dispositions. So as a wholesaler, you have two sides of the sales process. You have the sales side in the beginning where you're talking to the homeowner and the sales side of the back end where you're talking to the house flipper or landlord that you're going to be selling the property to. They're different skill sets in my opinion. They're different sales processes. The first one is more of a traditional sales process. You're creating rapport. You're trying to find out their pain points. You're trying to see if you can solve a problem for them. Then you're negotiating price. On the back end, when you're talking to the, the landlord or the house flipper, it's a pure negotiation. There's no rapport necessarily. Like you don't want to be a jerk, but you don't have to, in other words, you don't have to convince uh, a landlord why they want to be in real estate. They already know. They, they're look, they want the numbers. Like, what do you want for it? And then they need to do their due diligence. What can I rent it for? Like all these things. So you, as soon as you hit the ground, you're negotiating on the, on the back end. On the front end, it's a much slower, softer process than it is on the back end. So once that happens, we get we find a buyer for it. Now we put those two together. The contract we got with the seller goes to the title company. The assignment contract we got with the buyer also goes to the title company. The title company sees those two and they understand, okay, this purchase agreement that was signed by my company is now being assigned to the buyer, right? And then we either create two closings. One is like an A to B closing. It's me and the seller closing. And then the B to C is me and the buyer closing. Or you just combine them. It's an assignment contract. There's only one closing and everyone goes to that closing. And then we get paid. Okay, wow, that's awesome. Um, I really said that fast. I know, I realize that. There's a lot of questions probably in there for people who are listening, but that's the, that's the overview of it. There are, but you've done, Mike, I, I mean it. You've really explained things so tangibly, like an actional, like, not, no fluff, like very step-by-step. Step. So people can learn more about the process of wholesaling, but like you just outlined very quickly and succinctly the entire process that now like I've learned from a background level of just talking to other wholesalers and doing these type of interviews, but you just laid it out very simply and quickly. And then the tools and stuff, people can add those, but that's the process. And that's an amazing process, especially one that you've developed over time and added. So um, really cool. Thank you for doing the walkthrough of that. that that's really helpful. Um, just a couple more wind down questions here. Um, you've got some really cool stuff happening at the book, um, the, the, the content creation you're doing, it seems like you're getting back into flipping. So what's next for you in 2020 and then beyond 2020. 
So in 2020, like I said, I'm a member of a mastermind, seven figure flipping. Um, <laughs> right now we're trying to figure out how to work our events around not being able to gather. It's interesting. Uh, so we have an online event for our members uh, next week, actually. And then in October, we have kind of our flagship event called Flip Hacking Live. That's open to the public. You don't have to be a member of our mastermind. It's open to everybody. So um, if you go to seven figure flipping or flip hacking live.com, you can check that out. But so that's what I'll be, I'll be focused on that probably starting in like June, July. That'll be my focus is, is on that. But the rest of the year is going to be for me, it's promoting my book, like talk about it. It launches, uh, it's going to be available on June 1st. Um, so right now, unfortunately, if you go to try to find it on Amazon, you won't be able to find it, but, um, it's going to be available June 1st. So for the next month and a half here, I'll be hardcore talking about that. And then once it's out, um, I'll be talking about it still. Like I'm, my, my goal is to get on a bunch of stages this year, either virtually or in person, if that's possible. Um, and just kind of spread the word because, you know, I would have really like, I wouldn't have killed literally, but I figuratively would have killed to get someone to just tell me the truth about what's happening and what I need to do. Like, just tell me what I need to do. That's what people want to know, right? I don't need to hear all the fluff. Like you said, just literally give me the nuts and bolts so I can go to work. And that's what I tried to do in my book is give nuts and bolts of what it actually took. Um, some of it is mindset though. Like nobody wants to hear that because it's soft and it's not tactical, but I'm telling you, I have seen it with my own eyes. If I give two people the exact same tangible advice and tools and, and tips and tricks and everything that they need to know. Two separate people. Sometimes one of them will, will succeed and, and they'll really go out and crush it and the other person doesn't. And it's not what they were told, it's what's between their ears. It's their mm -hmm. own thought process. And the people that I call like the yeah butters, people you tell them something and they'll go, yeah, but in my market, and it's like, well, what about this? Yeah, but you know, so the yeah butters, yeah butters will always fail. They'll never get anywhere because they're always trying to look at why something won't work. I would rather tell someone who is like blissfully ignorant about everything that can go wrong because they'll just do what I tell them to do and they'll be okay. So sometimes it's just the action takers, the people who realize that there's more to it, but they're okay with only knowing enough to get to the next step. And then when they get to the next step, they'll figure out what you have to do to get to the next step, right? People who have to know everything and they have to have contingencies and all these fail safes, they'll never, they'll never do it. They'll just never do it. So a lot of it's mindset, man. Like, what do you think? Like, what do you want? And what are you willing to do to get there? I know people who say, I've tried real estate. It doesn't work. It's like, well, what did you do? Well, like I, I made, I made an offer and they didn't take it. It's like, well, then what did you do? Like, that was it. It didn't work. Right. It's like, dude, you got to make a hundred offers. Like, don't even think about getting a deal until you made a hundred offers. And if you get one in the first 10 offers, awesome. But just set your mind up that it's going to take a hundred. Right. Um, I know people that binge Netflix every second of every day they get home from work. They're just watching sports. And then the weekends they're watching. It's like, Hey, did you watch game of Thrones? Yeah. I watched the entire nine seasons over the weekend. It's like, dude, this is why you're not an entrepreneur. Like you can't, there's no weekends. Like when I was working a nine to five job, I would work until 5 PM. And then until 10, I was looking at houses. I was in basements with flashlights and I'm in Michigan. So it wasn't pleasant in the cold weather months. I was in basements with no heat with a flashlight looking at like the electric box to see if it needed to be upgraded. Like that's how I spent my nights. Mm. And on the weekends I was looking at houses, I was making offers. Like that's what I did. That's, that's what you have to do sometimes. If you yeah. want to, if you want to have a side hustle, you got to, you know, side hustle, half of that term is hustle, you know, yeah. so you got to hustle. hundred percent. I, I cannot wait personally to read that book and I, we'll help get it out. We'll link it and just awesome. try to push it out because 
Um, just hearing you talk and your outlook, especially now that you just, I, I love what you just said, pairing the actual, the tangible activities, which I think most people don't even put out there. They just put out fluff with a tiny bit of action and then more fluff, but you're just a lot of like tactics, which is what most people need. But then to your point, the mindset, the, yeah, but I've never heard it put that way, but that's so good. I don't know if you ever, um, if you've read any Joe Fairless's stuff or you mm -hmm. follow any of his content. Yeah, I was on his podcast actually. Yeah. Oh, you are. Okay. So then yeah. perfect. That makes total sense. But yeah. his book, it reminds me so much of kind of your concepts of like, he's a big Tony Robbins follower, but he's also very action oriented, very tactical, just like you. But it, it like his book is one of my favorite real estate books because it's more like a handbook. It's like, it's like a guide. It's not yeah. like 30, 50 pages of fluff on the front side. It's here's how you do it. But beforehand, here's the mindset you need to have and empower yourself and then go out and actually do it. So checking both those boxes, it's like you have the best chance to actually succeed or get through to people that, well, the game of Thrones, nine hours, you know, whatever that, that may never come around, but for the people that maybe are on the edge or they need some mindset and then they just need some tactics, it could be so powerful. So I'm excited. That sounds, I, I can't wait to read it and uh, I can't wait to check out more of your content. So just, um, what do you like to do for fun before we get out of here? Anything, uh, other than real estate? I know most people say real estate's fun. It sounds like, yeah, you kind of have a good system with it too. Man, that's going to sound like such a contradiction now, but I'll tell you right now, as we talk, I'm sitting in a theater room in my house. So I build a theater room in my house. I enjoy movies. Now, I understand every, every movie I watch is, is two hours that I'm not doing my business. Now, that being said, I work from home, so I'm working more hours than I ever did at a nine-to-five job. But when I, I do think it's important to cover, compartmentalize a little bit, and I know it's important to have downtime. So you have to. You got to give your brain a break, right? You go crazy. So when I do decide I'm not going to work right now, like I'm done working for the day or like it's over, I do enjoy watching movies. So I'll watch a movie. I, I built an entire theater room in my house, like with stadium seating, the whole nine, like it's, it's, it's legit, but that's what I like to do. So that's what I did. Cool. I won't ask you favorite movie, but favorite genre, maybe that'll be a little easier. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of a sci-fi Marvel. Like that's just what I, what I watch. Cool. That's cool, me, man. I was All watching, right. I was watching a Marvel movie last night, actually late. So. Okay. Love it. Awesome. Um, you're doing a lot. You, you've got the show and uh, the book coming out, but what right now is the best way for people to learn more about you, your contact, maybe get in touch, any, any of that stuff? Yeah, totally. Um, if you go to uh, juststartrealestate.com, uh, you can check me out there. If you go to juststartrealestate.com forward slash vault, that'll take you to the, the video vault that I referenced earlier if you're, if you're interested. Um, it definitely has everything we talked about in great detail, plus a lot more. It's just, it's just everything you need to run your business, but, um, you can go there and check that out. Um, just go to juststartrealestate.com or if you want to just email me, it's Mike at juststartrealestate.com. Okay. Awesome. We'll link all that. Uh, last question of the show mantra, of this group value add before value ask, even for people that are reaching out via email or whatever. Um, is there anything right now that you're either working on, um, could be doing, but maybe not, you don't like to do, or if someone reached out to try to bring you some free value or offer help with something just to kick the relationship off on the right foot would be maybe be the right way to do that. I, I tell you, there's two things you could do that would make me, that's a great question, man. I'll tell you what, this is huge because I'm sure you get this. I get this. I get people asking me for things all the time, right? <laughs> 
if you want to break through the noise and actually get me to respond for sure, there's two things you can do. Traditionally, if you send me a screenshot that showed me that you reviewed my podcast and you know this, if you don't already, you're going to know it. That's currency to people who have a podcast. That is currency. You're literally giving me currency. You, you screenshot that you reviewed the podcast and then you ask me something, I will answer you 1000%. Uh, as of June 1st, if you screenshot that you bought my book, and then you say, hey, can you take some time to talk to me? I will give you my calendar and we will talk. There's no doubt about it, 100%. So for me, that's the kind of stuff I need. I don't even need a lot. Like you don't need to spend a lot of time or energy on me. You review my podcast or buy my book, I will give you my time. I consider that to be equal trade. That is spot on. And we will do that and link that and try to get you as many reviews for both as we can uh, and get the word out there because not just to help, but I think your message and delivery is going to help so many people. So that's a tiny thing uh, as a thank you just for all the value you're putting out there. So uh, Mike, with that, I just want to say personally, thank you. I've enjoyed um, the last, well, almost 90 minutes or so. Um, I've gotten, I feel like so much smarter just listening, taking notes. I'm going to go back. I, I heard your bigger pockets episode, but I got to listen to Fairless and I've heard a couple of your episodes that you do obviously, cool. but um, the only thing with that is sometimes, you know, you don't get to hear from the person that's asking the question. So, you know, I'll, I'll look for the ones <laughs> sure. you've been on more. Um, so thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for the content you're putting out there. And uh, thanks for coming on. Before we jump, any, any parting word or final word for, uh, for anyone before we jump? Uh, well, first of all, this was a lot of fun to do. I appreciate it. I enjoy being on this side too. It's, it's easier for me actually just to answer questions and not be running the show because you're doing a lot behind the scenes to make things happen. Uh, you're a great interviewer. So number one, I, I think this is a great show. I listened to this before I was, before I came on today, I definitely listened to some episodes because I wanted to hear what you were about. So you do a great job. I love your podcast. I think it's awesome. And it's, it's providing great value for people. So thank you for doing that. Um, other than that, I think the number one thing is, and I, I named my podcast Just Start Real Estate for a reason. It wasn't random. I think the people, uh, I think the biggest thing that holds people back is they don't start. And one of the motivations for me was I used to listen to a lot of podcasts before I had mine. And inevitably, the host would ask the person, like, what is your advice for people who want to start a business or want to start whatever? And so many people that I respected after listening to them would say, just start like just start to get out there and go, right? So if you want to be a real estate investor, like if you want to be a house flipper, you're like, I really want this. I want it. Just start, get out there and start, right? Do, do a little research, get a little bit of education, but then just go out and make the mistakes. Like just start making offers, go for it. Like that's the biggest thing that holds people back is they don't actually start. They read, they research, they don't make offers. I, I have a family member, another one, who told me a while back, I want to flip houses. And I said, okay. Uh, a year later, I, I asked him, how's it going? Oh, not that great. It's kind of slow. I said, how many offers did you make this month? None. <laughs> okay. That's it, man. You, you got to get out there and make offers. So <laughs> just start is my biggest thing. Okay. I love that. And that is, uh, it's just as simple as it can get, but as effective as it can get. So appreciate that again, Mike. Best of luck to you in 2020 and beyond. Um, Thanks, we'll link everything. We'll put it all together and get it out there. So thank you again. Cool. No problem. Man. Thank you. 
Hey, you millennial millionaire, do you want more? Then head to the Millennial Millionaires Through Real Estate Facebook group, where there are tons of step-by-step walkthroughs, tools, templates, and free networking to help you achieve financial freedom through real estate. And if you want Jonathan to help you personally reach your goals, then feel free to set up a one-on-one call in the link below or message him on any social media platform and apply to, well, work with Jonathan.